0: Hey, listeners, this is Jay Lampart, one of the producers of How We Grieve. Just a quick note before we begin the program. This episode deals with suicide, bullying, teen drug and alcohol use, and sex. So, listener discretion is advised.
1: If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's one 800 273 8255 More information about advocacy for the topics you hear during this episode can be found at the end of the episode and in the show notes.
2: St. Paul says Death, where is your sting? Christians believe in the resurrection of the body. Christians hope in the reality of heaven. But how can this authentic Christian hope exist alongside such sadness and feelings of loss when someone we love dies? Two of the most striking words in the entire Bible are, Jesus wept. Even this eternal God, who became man, wept over the death of his dear friend Lazarus. Walk with us as we explore death and the feelings of loss by those of us left behind. I am Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve.
0: This was a bur- surprise birthday party, and she was one of the first ones to come running into my arms. You can just see the kindness and the love in her eyes. She's, she was a, a very special human.
2: Grace was a sophomore in high school and lived in a close-knit suburban community. Her family lives at the end of a long cul-de-sac with a beautifully manicured yard.
0: The sisters on, if you've ever gone to the zoo, you recognize that that iron lion, maybe? I think I have a picture of it when I was four sitting on it, So, but all four girls sitting on it laughing. That was uh, my birthday in December of 2011, and uh, she, she was gone three and a half months later, uh, which the fact that we could lose a child like this to suicide was absolutely nonsensical to us. She had every advantage, every so much love, uh, and we knew what was going on and we couldn't save her. Grace was just born happy. I mean, she was just a bright light from birth. She was joyful. If you can imagine, you know, you know all your children come out a little bit differently. They're all individuals, but this was the child that I'd have to say, Grace, you use your indoor laugh. You know, she was just exuberant a lot of the time, and very sweet, uh, very kind, very funny, uh, made us laugh every day. And she had a very kind heart. There's kind of a joke where she literally licked a slug (laughs) because her uh, cousins and sisters had been putting salt on slugs, and when she realized that they were doing something that wasn't very nice... She ran inside with it and ran it underwater and then um, when that didn't seem to help she <laughs> actually licked it. So you know that's the kind of person that she was. And so we had a, a family full of love, full of joy, full of happiness up until she was about 14 years old. And then it almost seemed like uh, evil reached out and plagued us for a year. And, you know, faith was very important to be holding us together at that point, but um, we came one thing upon another upon another for almost a year that we knew it was happening, and we did everything we could to try to write things and get help, and it just didn't happen. And Grace died on Easter Sunday of 2012.
2: Over the summer of Grace's freshman year of high school, Many of her neighbors and friends were at a graduation party. As the party was wrapping up, Grace was looking for one of her good friends in some of the other houses in the cul-de-sac. But instead of finding her friend, she found her friend's older brother. Then, at some point in the evening, the two of them made their way into another neighbor's empty home.
0: He went with her and... You know, she drank... On her own, but he was tipping bottles up and asking about things like her tolerance and this, that, and the other. And then he said he wanted to look f- for drugs in the house they were in, and he found Oxycontin. And he said, you know, he could get good money for these, and he put a couple in his pocket, but then he crushed and gave it to her and told her it wouldn't hurt her, she should try it. And she was young and naive and dumb, and did. But then a girl that had never, you know, she wasn't yet allowed to date. She was 14. She had had her first kiss at homecoming recently. He had sex with her, and um, the next day was Father's Day, and she didn't want to ruin it, she said. But the following day, she told us everything she could remember. And she felt like she had made a huge mistake and and broken trust and upset a lot of people. So she felt terrible. But we called his family over the next day and sat down with them and told them everything that we knew. And, you know, when I got to the drug part, the parents were like, well, that sounds like him. The father was. And the mother's like, no, no, no. But then they went home. And when they asked the young man about it, he denied everything. and. The mom's attitude, what she actually said was, you know, he feels like he's being maligned. And we didn't talk a whole lot after that. This happened in the house next door, good friends of ours. Without their knowledge, it happened, and we had them over and told them everything that happened. And this time, you know, Grace was out there, we were on the deck. and we were all crying and Grace was crying and apologized and and at the time the people were very compassionate and said you know we love we still love you everybody makes mistakes and we thought we had done the right thing by showing integrity and coming forward and telling the truth and that things would heal from there and we would be on our way to a better day and she would learn a lesson but when the other family didn't come forward and were more combative and not interested in talking with that family about it they got angry and they said we're going to call our lawyer and the police and see what our options are and so a few days later there was a police officer at the door young 20-something muscle-bound guy who wanted to talk and you know we were fine with talking we just wanted to tell the truth of the matter and i stepped outside with him for a minute and I said, give me a couple minutes to, to wake up my daughter. And he said, do you know how serious this is? This could be a first-class felony. And I said, I, I know why you're here. Um, and, and yeah, I'll talk to you, but there are other things that are more serious that I think we need to discuss. And he shrugged his shoulders and said, it's not illegal to have sex. Both were charged with breaking and entering. Um, they were charged with burglary because of the alcohol. And this was June 30th, and their court date wasn't until October 11th of 2011. And so for months we were under this shadow of, "My Lord, we're involved in the legal system, and she's still reeling from the assault and having to see him every day at school." the family who had been like parents to her, you know, her Girl Scout troop leader was the mom were suddenly turning against her and but she would know these things because her good friend would tell her what was being said in the house so it was really very difficult and damaging. So the tweeting from the young man began sometime that summer and she didn't have Twitter but she didn't need to because other people would see it and tell her what he was saying. And other people would want to contact her just to let her know what he was saying. And we screenshot a lot of this. As soon as I found out about it, I mean, we were coming back from a therapy appointment. I can still see her sitting next to me in the van when she just broke down and started to cry and uh, and shake. And I asked her, you know, what's going on? And she said, he's talking about me again. And it said something like, your own effing lawyer is trying to help me out. I kind of feel sorry for you because nobody likes you. See you Tuesday, bitches. Things like, um, I hate you seven times. I hate, 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 hate you. I hope you see this and cry yourself to sleep. Then wake up and kill yourself, you might as well. You're just a lousy piece of snitches, I will kill you. Snitches should have their fingers cut off one by one while they watch their families burn. were damaging, they were malicious, they were dehumanizing, and at the time, adults didn't really know what social media existed of and what was going on out there, and, and what I need people to understand, if you don't understand social media or you don't have children that use it, is that this kind of information or these kinds of tweets go out to not just everybody in their peer group pretty much, you know, these went out to hundreds of people at a time and then they could be retweeted or they become grist for the rumor mill and it's just damaging. You know, we got her help from the medical field, we got her therapy support. She knew we were trying to help her and she appreciated that, but I think she felt worthless, she felt hopeless, she fell into anxiety and depression and she couldn't see clear, being a child in particular, to a better day. ends up you know they were both punished pretty heavily um, with the exact same thing and they were on probation for like a year and 150 hours of service and if you can believe it a victim impact class as if she weren't already struggling Um, and we live out in an area that is somewhat rural and honestly you know these people go to our same church their family is also very active in the church and that's where we had hoped to get a lot of our community service hours but she couldn't she just would have almost a breakdown if there was a plan that we were going to run into him or if we did run into him so his sister could tell her when you know what their plans were most of the time but lo and behold the tweeting did not stop and I don't think it was necessarily constant or I've seen it you know People write that it was relentless. I don't think it was all the time, but it didn't need to be all the time for it to be as damaging as it was. And she was hurting almost all the time, you know, having trouble eating, having trouble sleeping. I look back and I now that I know more about depression and anxiety and the risks of, you know, suicide ideation, We got her um, homeschooling for a while, but now, you know, after her death, I find out that social isolation is one of the things that is one of the risk factors for suicide. The changes in behavior that I saw that I didn't understand at first were PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, She had a full-fledged PTSD flashback of that night she was screaming and angry and, and flailing. And I had her face to face with me and she couldn't see me. And she was saying things like, I didn't say yes and I hate you. And we didn't know what we were seeing. I thought maybe she had taken drugs or something. We call, and I picked up her phone and her phone said she just wanted to die. And so, you know, we immediately called an ambulance and the police got here first. And they heard what was going on and they saw what was going on. And I asked them to come in and help me get her down from her bunk bed because the ambulance was coming. And they said, no, we know exactly what we're hearing. We recognize this. We don't want to manhandle her in any way. And they waited for the ambulance to come.
2: With all the trauma Grace had been through, her mental health continued to decline.
0: We knew what was happening and we did everything we could to try to write things and get help and it just didn't happen and Grace died on Easter Sunday of 2012 and we were absolutely shocked and blown out of the water it was a suicide we were able to bring her back not consciously but you know we we gave her CPR and and she was taken to the local hospital and then down to Johns Hopkins, and upon her death, you know, we knew she was brain dead and and we were able, thank goodness, to, to donate her organs. But standing over her body at Johns Hopkins, it became clear that there was just an incredible injustice that had been done. The fact that a child that had everything to live for could be lost to suicide, it was just shocking cyber abuse. I used to call it cyber bullying, but bullying is a problem in our schools and in our society in general, but bullying makes you think somewhat of young children and playgrounds where this was cyber abuse. It was actually what I consider child abuse, but over the internet by the misuse of social media. And we knew it was happening and we tried to get help from the schools and the police and the courts and the state's attorneys. Um, And either people didn't understand what we were seeing and the devolving of her that we were seeing, or they just didn't seem to care. I mean, I should say our church knew as well, our youth minister and and a priest that I had approached for prayer support. But for her, she knew we were trying to get help that did not come. Um, The state's attorney promised they could make the tweeting stop. Um, And none of that was done. And this is all things that I found out later. And everyone needs to know what their rights are as students, what the risk factors are for suicide, because suicide has now become the number two cause of death For three different age ranges from age 10 to 34 in the United States and I believe the suicide rate amongst teens the trajectory of that has really gone up and it is in the same trajectory since smartphones and social media have been available to children I need people to understand that you can have a very strong faith and you can really believe with your heart that there's a communion of saints and that there's a heaven that is so much better than this broken world, but that doesn't cover the grief. You know, I felt weird that, you know, I thought, well, gee, if you really have a good faith, you're not going to feel these questions or this kind of grief or this kind of loss that just knocks you down and makes you think you might never be able to get up again. And quite honestly, sometimes makes you think, you know, death would be easier and you wouldn't care. All of that goes through your mind. And I had been at the depths of depths, the bottom of the deepest, darkest hole you can imagine, just lying there (laughs) and not sure if I'd ever be able to get out. But slowly over time, I realized that I was not alone down there. <laughs> and I noticed that God was with me every single moment. And He got me out of that hole. And while I have always been very close to the Blessed Mother, um, I understood her in a whole new way. I mean, she had a beautiful child that was lost and I'm not so sure she knew when it was happening to her and, and certainly I'm sure there are theologians that will argue with me but it, from my point of view I don't think she necessarily knew what was going to happen or how it would end and she must have been also just broken to see her child treated the way he was and then to have him die and think what was this all about
2: I am Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. More with Christine in a bit. Stay with us. I am Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. Before the break, we were talking with Christine, whose 15-year-old daughter, Grace, died of suicide in 2012. Christine, thank you for sharing your story. How how has your family been doing since Grace's death? What's their grief journey been like?
0: You know, everybody's grief journey is so, so different. And I think you have to respect everyone's journey. And someone explained to me when this first happened, uh, this was a grief guy at Hopkins, that it had been described to him like being on a ship. And the ship exploding and you're all on your own piece of flotsam, blown apart from each other, all drifting in your own place, in your own way. And I agree with that. That's what it felt like, except for the blessing that I feel like even though we were all just being shattered and blown, I felt like we each had a hand on somebody else. We each had, at least I'm hanging on to somebody else's piece of driftwood or somebody else's foot so we were all connected and you know my husband and I had conversations from the very beginning get-go because we knew that the statistics on marriage is faltering when you lose a child and suicide you know those those two things together are compounding grief I believe and then compounding just everything that happened the year leading up But. I can't speak completely for the girls. I think the fact that they were, the two older ones, you know, were living elsewhere in college. Um, I know they suffered. The girls were very, very close. A lot of love there. Of course, you know, fought like all siblings do, but it was an incredible loss for them as well. And they each found their way through. I couldn't tell you exactly how. I can tell you that. The one who is getting her PhD in clinical psychology in North Carolina right now is focusing on adolescent psych. And I think that this definitely played a role in her path to there, and I know she'll be wonderful at it. Um, the other one is going to be a, she's getting her doctorate of nurse practitioner, and she has married since, since Grace died, and actually she got married on Grace's birthday. Um, Gloria probably had it tougher. Gloria was 11 and I think she had a lot of people who felt protective of her but it certainly is hard to escape that you're Grace's sister and the family was pretty well known because she had three older sisters who did well right up through high school even I mean she knew she could tell sometimes like she was a grocery store clerk and people would come through her line and ask how I was you know ask how she was and very kind everybody everybody means well i think but she just wanted to live her life and she is a different human being than grace was she's just in ways where grace was a little more meek and tender gloria is a strong young woman who knows what she wants and and uh is mature beyond her years and she's going to be fine too She also wants to be in in the medical field, and she wants to be of service somehow. I think they're, thank God, that's that's a gift as well, a blessing. They are all going to be okay.
2: Christine, I know you were very active in your Catholic faith. Did you experience a lot of support from your parish community? So
0: what I found an unexpected and an incredible blessing is after she died, The community and the church came together in just amazing, amazing ways to support us. Grace had just finished up her preparation for confirmation and ended up, she was confirmed on her deathbed at the same time that she was given last rites by um, a priest we really love. Um, We actually had her viewing in the church, but the couple of nights before the viewing, The youth director, I think, had even been in touch with the archdiocese, but they had like an open house kind of for all of the youth in the community, and they worked with the schools to do that so that the kids would have a place to come and to talk and to think and to pray and to connect. As far as the actual church went, there really was no grief support. I mean, years ago when my dad had died after Alzheimer's, at the time there was a woman who wrote to people once a month and I you know, it was nice to get something. It was usually something, you know, that was uplifting and just, you know, we remember with you type of thing. But um at that time I don't think our parish really had anything. And there was one man who was a Eucharistic minister who, you know, it's not like we had called him or anything, but he would just show up every now and then and actually the pre-loss me might have felt uncomfortable about that. But at that time, I was hungry for spiritual support. And uh, it was very welcome. But I've never found anybody else. Um, in my experience in the Catholic Church, and I've only had you know two or three parishes, but the priests who were there just, I don't know how to explain it. They're, they weren't there to talk to you they were there to say Mass, and then there just weren't people around. I, I feel like, and I may be wrong, there didn't seem to be any training um, or anything obvious that I could note from the other um, lay ministers, the priests or the deacons that really was there for us. I know I said the same thing to the youth minister who I'd known for quite a while. And I you know, I wrote to him, and we had some conversation because he did know about the abuse before it all happened. I mean, he knew what was going on. But I said, you know, when I get to the end of the Our Father and you know, deliver us from evil and forgiving others, Um, Both of those things, like, would make me stop, choke. Um, I mean, how could evil have followed us that year? You know, we tried to do everything the right way. We trusted everybody that maybe didn't deserve our trust. And I said to him, I don't really expect you to answer me. I just need to say it to somebody. But I did also say it to our deacon, who had kind of handled helping us put the, you know, pick the music and be the conduit between the church and us during the planning. But I did put that in writing to him. And he answered with one word. And I really, I wasn't expecting him to give me, I just needed somebody to, to show some compassion and loving support for the kind of just, uprooting of everything I held sacred really at the time and the answer was obedience and you know seven years out I can appreciate probably what he meant by that what obedience you know just God has a plan maybe is what he meant or you know just living your life the best you can. I don't know exactly what he meant, but I know he's a good person and, and you know, a good communicator normally. But um, at the time, it felt like a like a full-on slap. And I, you know, I just was reeling from not understanding and then never being able to find support we don't have the people in the pews that we had at one time, and we have a lot of needs in the church. And um, I don't know how you fix that exactly. Um, we, are, we are totally removed from death as Americans. It, it happens somewhere else. Um, it, it used to happen in the home. It used to be people came mourning and visiting in the home, and um, it was just part of life. You know, it was the circle of life that everybody's going to die someday, but we just try to run ahead of death. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to plan for it. Um, and so I think that probably shows up in the way that we don't know how to, um, comfort people that are grieving as well. So maybe that's something that can change over time.
2: So Christine, what would you say to someone who's experienced something so painful and is having difficulty returning to the church.
0: Um, you know, it's it's very hard if you if you can't be peaceful uh, in your parish, either because of what happened there or the people, some of the people there, or you had the funeral there and you have flashbacks of a casket on the altar, like I experienced. Um, keep looking. That's all, that's all I can say, I, I knew I needed to be, for me to feel peace, I need to stay connected to God. It's the times when I don't make the time that I feel more distressed by the world, by things that have happened. But if I, if I can find a place that feels peaceful to me, where I can connect to God, then that's just where peace flows from. Ideally, I'd love that for everyone. Honestly, I don't know how people do heavy grief without some sort of belief system. That because what saved me all the way through is I believe that I will see my child again. And you know, the priest that did say the funeral mass. Um, speaking with him later, you know, I said I just don't know if I can sing again. Or heal if I if there's no justice and he said oh don't wait that long he said because it might not even be in this life and so it was learning to let go this for me I just kept repeating in my head I don't understand I don't understand I don't understand and he said you may never understand until you get to heaven and then I realized then it won't matter anymore you know, so you can kind of let it go. All the questioning, like what I call the woulda, coulda, shouldas. I wish I would have done this or I could have done that or I, I should have done whatever. You can let that go and you realize you'll, first of all, it doesn't change anything. And second of all, um, you will find out someday. It will all make sense someday. But then it won't matter anymore because you'll just be so happy to be reunited.
2: Christine, with everything that you've been through, did you find anything that people said particularly helpful in your grief process?
0: Quite honestly, the things that for me were most helpful and that I love the most was just hugs. There are no words that really make any sense at that point. Of course, I'll always say, you know, I'm sorry and, and I'm thinking of you. I'm, I'm praying for you. Um, particularly for, for strength and peace eventually, mm-hmm. which is one of those pieces that is beyond understanding because y- you can't imagine that you'd ever be able to get there. And support. I mean, I did have, you know, some friends and even people I didn't know that well who did keep up with us longer than the typical. But in general, it does stop, which is, you know, people have lives. They, ne- they need to go back to their, their lives. But there were some, some people that, you know, not of the parish that repeatedly wrote to me or left flowers on the front porch or or, um, just were, were awfully kind, you know.
2: I know you mentioned your experience at church, but were there other things that people said that weren't very helpful?
0: I've heard from a lot of other people who have lost children or who are grieving for spouses or parents or whatever that there are things that really tick them off that people say, uh, God had a reason, God needed them, time will heal, which I don't ever find um, problematic um, because I go, f- I go from a place where I assume that everybody is, is trying their hardest. They don't really know. We're not really taught very well. And if you don't have experience, you wouldn't know, but first of all, committed suicide is something that survivors of suicide really don't like to, survivors meaning the people, the families that live on, the loved ones that live on. They don't like to hear committed suicide because you know you commit crimes. Um, died by suicide is better. It doesn't bother me one way or the other, but I do see people correct press sometimes and, and say that.
2: I imagine that many of our listeners are unaware that using the phrase committed suicide can be particularly hurtful to individuals and families who have been affected by suicide. Can you share with us a few suggestions on ways to better walk with those families?
0: I think there was a lot of hesitancy, particularly from the schools, to even mention the word and I think it's clear now that that stereotype has been broken for most people. If you're paying attention, you know, suicide, talking about it doesn't make it happen. If anything, talking about it makes people seek help, feel supported, get help. And, and um, instead of feeling shame, uh, they realize that, you know, it's an, it's an illness and they need help.
2: Christine, we've talked a lot about suicide and bullying. If one of our listeners is concerned about someone or is experiencing something themselves, what can we do?
0: I think the first thing that people should do, you know, any of these issues is tell someone, confide in someone, and keep telling someone until people hear you, until you have the help that you need. You know, the Me Too, the fact that all of these kind of issues have kind of come to the fore of nationally for us just in the last five years you know these are things that i thought would take forever to raise awareness about in our little case but it seems like there has been this groundswell movement of all of these kinds of issues that need healing keep talking about it keep knowing that you're worthy knowing that you're loved knowing that you have a purpose don't give up um there was another case where a woman from close by, but I did not know her. She was in her 50s and, and, you know, she had had a terrible six months prior and she had been driving around crying for hours. And she had a plan and two bottles of liquid courage. And a plan is, in suicide language, you know, you can ask somebody, if you're worried about somebody, you and and you see different signs that you can actually look up, the agitation and things like that you should ask somebody directly are you thinking about suicide and be prepared for the answer that might be yes and don't freak out but you're, you know you can help them probably but after you hear that they're thinking about it the next question is do you have a plan because that's a step further that's bad that's like immediate need for serious care So she said she had a plan and two bottles of liquid courage, but she decided to look through her social media one last time to see her family and children and stuff. And then she came across some sort of post that had been on Grace's memorial page, and she said, and instead I went to the hospital. And that kind of thing blows me away, but also tells me that it's needed, that we need to have more places to be heard and places to speak about, you know, how much how good life can be and how much help there is to get there.
1: Christine now advocates for mental health awareness and the damages of cyberbullying.
0: People of goodwill came together and Grace's law which is an anti-cyberbullying law in Maryland, was passed four days before the one-year anniversary of her death.
1: Updates on her work can be found on her Facebook page.
0: Through Grace's memorial page, it's Grace McComas Memorial. You know, that's where we started our advocacy. Some family members have asked me, how long are you going to keep using the page? I was like, as long as it seems to be helping someone.
1: How We Grieve is hosted and written by Edward Herrera, with production help, original music, editing, and creative direction by Jay Lampard. This has been a production of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. To learn more, visit our website, howwegrieve.org.